Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Today, we're going to talk about alcohol and Brexit. Not why the way Brexit is going may drive you to drink, but rather about some intriguing parallels between prohibition in early 20th century America and Brexit in 21st century Britain. Those comparisons were the subject of a recent great long read by Professor Ben Anstall of Nuffield College. So welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you, Mark. It's lovely to be here. Continuing the great tradition of professors being willing to come on the podcast. <laughs> um, Especially in the summer, it's very easy, easy to catch us at this time. So, <laughs> Absolutely. I know to avoid exam marking season is the time to not ask professors if they have any spare time. But the your piece, which I'll include a link to in the show notes for listeners, sort of really pulled out some intriguing parallels between prohibition and Brexit. But I guess... A good starting point is really why make why pick of all the different things in history that one could pick to parallel with Brexit. Why why pick prohibition? What caught your eye about that? I begin the the Substack piece with a with an admission that I thought I'd had this great idea that there was this wonderful parallel and that this was an original idea, and then I discovered that I was not in fact original. And there's a blogger called Flipchart Rick who'd written about this in 2017. And then my colleague at Oxford, Stephen Fisher, who many of your listeners will mm. probably know about from his election predictions. Steve had written a piece about similarities between Brexit and prohibition himself a few years back. But in both cases, they had written before Brexit proper had kicked in. And therefore, before we had got to the situation we're currently in, where not only in economic terms, does Brexit seem to be going poorly? And I think that was long predicted by many people. But politically, it seems to be failing to such an extent that we now, instead of having polls about do you think the decision to leave the European Union was a mistake or not, which is what the polling environment looked like, say, three or four years ago, now all the polls are about do you wish to rejoin the European Union entirely? And that just, that there are so few historical episodes where you have a national level change in policy that's really quite dramatic, sort of historically important change, that then is entirely, or at least seems to be entirely reversed within a decade and a half. And that's what we would be talking about if rejoin were to happen in the near to medium term. And so that's that's why the parallel to prohibition appeared to me. But of course, when you think about a parallel at a very abstract, just comparing X and Y, do these things look similar to one another? You, you then have to move to the next stage, which is to say, well, what what would the comparison actually look like? Like, can, can, can we make comparisons between the 1920s in America and the 2020s in the UK? And so the piece is an exercise in, okay, these things have this very uh, superficial similarity, but what what lessons could we draw if there were lessons to be drawn? Yeah. And I think one of the reasons this, par well, there are two reasons, I guess, this parallel particularly caught my eye. One is the, for a pro-European, it's so tempting to draw the parallel that prohibition was something where prohibition campaigners had had a long running, decades long campaign. They'd achieved then something with getting alcohol banned that seemed to be, at least in the immediate aftermath, a long term permanent change. And that undoing it would be very difficult. It required a constitutional amendment to undo it. Constitutional amendments are very, very difficult to pass in the US. But actually, when you look at the calendar, it only took 13 years from prohibition, apparently being this new permanent feature of American life through to it being repealed. 
and never seriously being a policy proposal again since. So as a pro-European, I would love that parallel to work. But the other reason it, it caught my mind is that there's this lovely quote from Abraham Lincoln, who less his campaigning on temperance issues is obviously one of the lesser known parts of his political career. But he wrote a letter uh, in the 19th century, basically gently chiding temperance campaigners, or at least some temperance campaigners, for the approach they were taking. And he said, I quote, it's an old and true maxim that a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. So with men, if you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. And that feels a very apposite bit of advice on a whole range of issues, which is if you want to persuade people, don't start off by demonising them, by assuming that if someone was pro-Brexit, they must be racist, etc. Now, I'd love Abraham Lincoln's quote to be true, that honey beats gall. But before we get into the specifics of prohibition, just generally from your knowledge of political science research, is do you think Lincoln is right? Or is it that just wish fulfillment on my part? No, I, I so look, the first thing to say about Abraham Lincoln is he is one of history's great political entrepreneurs. And this is something I've written about in, in my recent book is that one, one of Lincoln's geniuses was being able to turn the Republican Party from a constant mi minority party that could never win presidential elections to the dominating party of the late 19th century by pivoting on the issue of slavery. Of course, that didn't work out so well for Abraham Lincoln, and it led to a civil war in the process. Um, but Lincoln's advice is always interesting advice uh, because he was was able, I think, to always take a kind of mile high view of, of politics and remove himself from what the debate of the day was and to think more broadly about how to create political successes. So you can't please everybody all the time and see John Wilkes Booth, but I do think that successful politicians both know how to reframe debates. And I think this is where Boris Johnson was that Abraham Lincoln de Nojure, which is probably going to get me, <laughs> people will be turning off the podcast right now as I say that. But what Johnson did so effectively was reframe British mm. political debate to include a bunch of people in the debate who had felt perpetual losers mm. over a series of elections over 15 to 20 years and make them part of a new winning coalition. Right, And a lot of successful politics is about bringing people in rather than casting people out. So your point about honey, what, what we would now think of as the attracting more flies with honey than vinegar argument that, that comes from Lincoln is a really important one. Brexit was successful, largely, I think, because of the bus more than the anti-immigrant sentiment. Or in, in a way, people were feeling negative about lots of changes in the country, but in order to push them over the line, you needed to promise them goodies. And I think that is crucial to any successful political campaign. This is something that Keir Starmer is going to have to think about a lot more as, as the next election approaches. And to give you one final quick example on this, I, I ran a whole bunch of polls that I talk about it in my Substack that some of your readers can read about after this, about wealth taxation, about inheritance taxation. And we found that the only way to increase support for inheritance taxation was not to talk about issues about fairness and implicitly sort of castigating wealthy people who who want to keep all their money. Instead, it was just to say, look, if we tax inheritances, we can spend the money on things you like, like the National Health Service. So I, I and that was a very successful prompt in our survey. And I think it, it connects to your point that you need to promise people positives. Yeah. And also, I think there's a general point with tax, particularly taxing richer people, 
is that taxing richer people in pursuit of doing something that is generally desirable as opposed to taxing richer people in pursuit of not liking rich people tends to work best that sort of sense of this isn't just about hating others it's about trying to do some good right back to prohibition back to alcohol <laughs> so you identified six particular possible lessons for what might happen to brexit in future what people who want to see britain return to membership of the european union at some point might need to sort of learn from let's sort of step through them in turn your first one called enticingly in in that a long read piece you wrote is chasing the car is better than catching the car. So what did you mean by that? Well, so to, to go through this dog analogy, it's always it's, it's the the idea of a political goal and getting there is, is, I think, always more exciting than achieving your political goal and having to realise it just as the dog discovers as he tries to bite the car's exhaust. So... I fear there's a horrible parallel with the Liberal Democrats and hung parliaments and yes. Abe's referendum yeah. there. It's clearly chasing the car. And then, yeah. uh, and I think that's why there are sort of, you know, political scientists often think about the difference between elections and campaigning on the one side and policymaking on the other, almost as, as hermetically sealed worlds. That's part of the way that we divide our literature. But it's also because they're really different challenges. Boris Johnson found this too, right? He had wanted his whole life to be world king. He got to be world king, if you think Britain is the world, and then he didn't really know what to do with it. And I, I think this is just a human problem, that those people who were best at the former challenge of campaigning, rhetorical excitement, vision creation, are often not great executors of that idea once they come into office. And it's, it is rare to have a Blair-like figure or indeed a Thatcher-like figure who can impose their will both in the pre-election period and in the post-election period. So the Brexit prohibition analogy here is that the Anti-Saloon League, who were the sort of big pro-temperance organisation behind getting to prohibition, had been around for decades, had formed at the end of the 19th century, and had successfully led a lot of county level and then state level bannings of alcohol all across America. So perhaps one of the things that your listeners won't know about prohibition is it wasn't a zero to 100 um, policy change. Many, many American states had already banned alcohol during the late 19th and really early 20th century. And that was because of the success of, of this movement. Now, What's the parallel here? Well, I suppose the parallel is the Bruges group, John Redwood, the John Major's Bastards, this very long kind of anti-European movement that had first existed in the Conservative Party. And then, of course, under James Goldsmith became the referendum party and then shifted over to UKIP and built and built and built. So I suppose the parallel between states and counties going dry before prohibition and what happened with Brexit is before the referendum, UKIP were winning the European elections, were winning local elections left, right and centre, were looking like they could command 20, 25% of the vote. And so you have this huge surge that starts slowly and then builds to a crescendo. And at that crescendo moment in America, it's during the First World War, you have you have Congress sort of approving an amendment to send to the states in 1917. And then just a couple of years later, at the beginning of 1919, we have that constitutional amendment. Prohibition starts in 1920. 
I, the, the surge in a way in, in Europe, the European term seems a little bit slower. But if we think about the local elections in the early 2010s and then the success of UKIP in 2015, it's not really surprising that 2016 sees this kind of crest of the wave happen. And that wave has been building for quite a lot of time. But then you have this sudden flurry of success right before the referendum. You win and then you have to implement. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I guess implementation turned out to be challenging. <clears throat> and I think policies tend to fall into two categories, well, big controversial policies tend to fall into two categories, don't they? There are the ones that when they happen, they don't deliver on the promises and they be they become or they continue their contro controversial nature, Brexit being a classic example, but prohibition as well. It doesn't seem to have had very much of a honeymoon for the period that you can promise that this thing will solve so many things, you can get lots of support behind it, but then when reality hits, controversy continues. And then there are the policies which when they get implemented, everyone ends up sort of thinking, well, yeah, that's fine. The world didn't end. And so whether it's to take a really bizarre range of examples, but the 5p charge on plastic bags or the legalisation of same-sex marriage, both mm -hmm. of those were quite controversial before they came in. There were lots of I would think you could now particularly fairly describe them as scare stories about what the what horrible side effects would be of these policies. But actually, when the policies came in, the policies work completely fine and they're now very uncontroversial. And it seems like, again, hooray from a pro-European's point of view, but perhaps sadly in a way, the point of view of our country, that Brexit has not solved the sorts of problems that people promise. And therefore it is in the controversial rather than, OK, done and dusted, world has moved on category. Yeah, I, I, I mean, those examples are interesting that you bring up because they are areas where I would imagine, I don't know what the polling on plastic bags looked like. Certainly the polling on gay marriage was was in the majority area around the time of the vote, if I recall correctly. But it wasn't wasn't the super majority that we would have yeah. almost immediately after that bill passes. And that has been very stable since that point. You can think the creation of the National Health Service was hugely controversial at the yes, time. Yes, that's the a really good opposed it. And then it became the national religion. It took a while to become the national religion. But certainly by the 1980s, it wasn't going to be privatised even under Thatcher. So the question is whether there's something about prohibition and Brexit that are just more inherently divisive than gay marriage. And uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to figure out exactly what that would be and why. But it does seem to be the case that both Brexit and Prohibition were, were cases where opposition and supporters were very, very large, strong, difficult to move chunks of the population. You, you had a lot of these kind of 40, 60 differences. So even when Prohibition is reversed, there's still a good 25, 30 percent of the American population who absolutely don't want to reverse it. And, and that just isn't true with gay marriage today. Right. The, the, the recalcitrant people who opposed it have, have decided actually it wasn't so bad after all. Or indeed with the 5p bag charge, where I doubt there's a huge group of people asking for free plastic bags back. So I mean, obviously, the, the purely sort of partisan or normative answer to what's difference is the policies that were right are the policies that have worked and have stuck and people now love and the policies that were wrong went up. But maybe we should move on to your second lesson, which is show me the money. So what's the lesson here? Well, I mean, actually, there's a nice segue into what we just said, which is that when policies are costly, and I think that was true with prohibition and has been true with Brexit, it becomes much harder to take a moment 
of electoral success and turn that into a long lasting marriage. It is constantly being chipped away at by the perceived economic failure of the policy. So prohibition uh, is passed in part because it's economically feasible. And I talk a little bit about this in the article, but a few years before prohibition, there's another constitutional amendment which changes income tax in America, Mm. basically makes it viable for there to be a federal income tax. Beforehand, you would have to apportion out all the taxes exactly proportionate to the size of the states in ways that made that that policy Mm. unviable. That there's a constitutional amendment that that basically allows the feds to have an income tax that's more of a standard income tax without these weird constraints. And that then means that it can substitute for taxes on liquor, which had been uh, an important reason as to why prohibition might have been challenging, right? You would have lost a huge amount of government revenue if you'd banned alcohol and therefore you'd ban the duties that came with it. So now fast forward to the end of the 1920s. So the beginning of the 20s is, I suppose, our kind of COVID period where the effects of the passing the policy are covered up by a sort of large secular shift. In this case, it's it's the booming 20s, it's the roaring 20s. So the economy is, is going so well in the early 20s that whatever negative effects uh, prohibition is having are drowned out to some degree by this massive, massive boom. And then, of course, we all know how that boom ends with the Wall Street crash. So at the end of the 20s and in the early 1930s, the tide has gone out. We can see who's wearing shorts, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact that alcohol levies have been removed from the government's toolkit to raise revenue suddenly becomes really important, right? So that's less clear during the Roaring Twenties, and it's extremely clear by the end of the 20s and in the early 1930s. And this is where America's rich start panicking that they are now going to be the goose whose feathers are plucked most uh, dramatically. And you get a, a large number of American millionaires, but led particular by Charles DuPont, who's the head of the DuPont chemical family, who become strong wets, strong anti-prohibition campaigners because they think that bringing back alcohol duties can lead to less income tax. Okay, mm. So what's the parallel here with Brexit? Well, I think the parallel is that we are now in an extremely high tax environment, right? It's the highest aggregate tax level in the United Kingdom since the Second World War. Mm. And it's one that businesses and wealthy people are not especially happy about. I mean, in a way, that's why Liz Truss was so successful in leading the Conservative Party, because she did pick up on this sort of concern about high levels of tax that uh, members of the Conservative Party were were bringing bringing forward, but I think that's broadly across you know capital or across across business. Um, we see this same distaste for higher and higher taxes that we're all going to have to pay, in, and that are going to become especially challenging in a world where Britain's economic growth is stagnant. Mm. Right, and so this is where Anand Manon's famous line about being told when he went to, was it Newcastle or Sunderland, that, well, that's your GDP, right? The GDP doesn't matter. The, the general public don't see it. They don't care about these arguments about growth. The general public may not care, but the Treasury does care, right? Without growth, we have to have much higher taxes to pay for the things we want. And I think that's the pressure that's going to be constantly hammering onto Brexit over the next five years is if it seems that there's a growth burst that one could get from more integration with the European Union, not necessarily, but possibly including rejoining it, 
then that becomes an ever more attractive reason for the people who are paying the lion's share of taxes, i.e. wealthy people, to start moving in a pro-rejoin or at least pro-single market direction, just like Charles Dupont did. Yeah, I, I guess the tricky element here, thinking about Brexit, is, as you touched on with the point about GDP, the connection between policy and benefits is a much more contested one in a way that whether or not alcohol is legal and therefore whether or not you have a tax on alcohol and how much money you get from that tax, you can argue over the rights or wrongs of it, but the basic, if it was legal, we would be able to have this tax, get this amount of revenue. That basic factual argument is a lot more easy to convince people about than I, as we saw with the Brexit referendum, then arguments about trade barriers and long-term economic wealth in this country and therefore levels of tax. Those arguments didn't really work in the referendum. But as you say, I think one of the interesting elements of what happened with prohibition, which I hadn't really appreciated till reading your piece, was the extent to which sort of rich and hence powerful voices in the American political system started be fearing that they would just get clobbered more and more with higher taxes and therefore they had an incentive to try to shift the terms of public debate. And I guess the question in that context a bit in Britain is whether we see that through particularly the interests of newspapers. I mean, in a way, Rupert Murdoch is sort of the potential equivalent of, of DuPont in terms of the ability to change the terms yeah. of public debate, I guess. I think you're right, Mark. I think so. It, it was much easier to win a giant public election on noting the direct concentrated costs of the European Union, right? So the, the, the fees that, that we pay to the European Union every year and to potentially also make arguments although this wasn't very strongly made we could have made money off tariffs right i mean that's that that's not the way that the government went but i suppose that would have been a more direct way of making money off protection and certainly that was the that was the story that the conservative party had in the 1920s and 1910s and 1900s about pro-tariff pro-imperial preference and so on and it is much harder to make the argument that I guess the Liberal Party used to make at the end of the 19th century that, look, trade is good for growth and the growth gives us the revenue. It is more indirect. I think it's harder to convince the public, but it's not hard to convince elites because although it's a slightly more complicated story, it's a story that I think business leaders, press leaders are more comfortable making when it's not a, it's not an unimaginably complex argument. And so then it becomes a question of how that argument gets made and who makes it. I allude in the piece I wrote to the fact that business leaders have been mute, right, about the consequences of Brexit for the last few years, because it's been made extremely clear to them that if they come out and complain about Brexit, they will lose access to government ministers. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've heard that from so many different sources. I'm, I'm willing to believe that. In a world where Keir Starmer is prime minister, those businesses will suddenly find their voice. The cat will have left their tongue alone and they will start talking quite loudly. And it will be interesting to hear what they have to say and how they say it. I would imagine they will talk about the single market before they talk about anything else, because that's really what they will care about, as opposed to joining the, the political entity that's the European Union. But I think, like you say, you still have to shift some of the press, I would think. And you're never going to shift the Daily Telegraph, which, God bless it, is sort of spiraling into its own created world at the moment. But you might flip the Times, which is already sort of rejoin curious. And the big question then becomes how much do tabloids oppose rejoining, oppose a single market? 
And really, the voice from on high will dictate that. Rupert Murdoch, or whoever his successor is, if he's not still alive in five years' time, they will call that shot. And they will call that shot in part on based on the profitability that they that they see in doing so. Yeah, and that, again, could I mean, that could be a very personal quirk about what Murdoch or his successor sort of thinks. But it could also be quite a hard-nosed economic decision in terms of the dependence of media groups on advertising. And therefore, the worse the economy is doing, the more advertising budgets get squeezed, the more the media gets squeezed as a result. But underpinning, I guess, all of that is an assumption that sort of, I say economic issues will trump culture war issues. Mm -hmm. which is obviously a big debating point at the moment in British politics, has been in the last few years. And I was really struck with your point about show me the money with prohibition, how quickly something that had been essentially a cultural issue, the reason for banning alcohol was, okay, there were arguments around health a little bit, but it was fundamentally a not liking people being drunk. It was a a culture judgment. Um, How quickly that culture aspect of it did get trumped by economics yeah i mean there's an there's an interesting anti-parallel here actually that, that, I, that i didn't think of at the time when i wrote this but that's that prohibition was left was led by good government progressives <laughs> not by kind of root and two in working class kind of sons of the sons of the soil it really was an elite driven middle class policy and the economic catastrophe of the late 1920s or really early 1930s might have might have made the economic benefits of getting rid of prohibition loom much larger than those cultural ones. But it also was something that the working class of America largely, uh, or at least the working class of the cities, that they were that they were behind repeal. That that's not entirely the same with Brexit, right? I mean, Brexit was was at least a more self-professedly working class movement, kind of against good government progressives, if that's how you view Remain. I mean, that might be a more contentious claim. And and so it's not so clear to me that the parallel works brilliantly here because working class Americans who didn't like prohibition anyway and who were losing their jobs could all kind of shift uh, strongly towards repeal. And we have a slightly different political coalition around Brexit and Remain here such that it's not totally clear to me that working class Brits who voted for Brexit will blame Brexit for recession or for the cost of living crisis or for sort of slow growth in the way that did work for FDR's coalition in the the early 30s. Yeah, I mean, I guess the people and the views, how they express their views in terms of sort of disdain for alcohol in early 20th century US, I guess that most neatly matches not so much to... Eurosceptics and Brexiteers now, but it actually probably best matches to people who dislike McDonald's now. A lot of the rhetoric yeah. <laughs> you hear about McDonald's, it feels like falls into exactly that sort of good government government progressives disdaining something that a large number of other people enjoy, rightly or wrongly. I won't I won't impale myself on one or other side of that debate. Yeah, over I mean, or <laughs> dare I say, parts of the environmental movement have this challenge. I live in Oxford, so obviously I get to see the debates about low traffic neighbourhoods all the time. Mm. There is lots of invective on both sides, but there is definitely a kind of holier than thou strain to low traffic neighbourhoods that looks a lot like the holier than thou strain to prohib- prohibitionism. Um, Which brings us back to Abraham Lincoln and honey being the answer to everything. Yeah, well, well, and this is, 
I think the important moment to learn from Uxbridge is not that net zero is doomed, but rather that if you want environmental policies to be successful, you need to recognize who bears the costs of those policies, which in this case probably was actually a lot of people who might be interested in voting Labour, but white than man as well, and think about what you're going to do about that rather than just telling them that they're wrong. I think we've learned that that's an unsuccessful way of gaining a political coalition. So on that note, let's move on to lesson three, which is about uneasy neighbours. So what's the parallel here we should be thinking about? Yeah, so the parallel here is with Canada, um, because the Canadians, of course, didn't have a prohibition and indeed had an interesting export opportunity uh, once American distilleries could no longer produce alcohol in seeing if they might be able to um, export the produce of their own distilleries across the American border. Now, of course, it was illegal for Americans to buy this, but it wasn't illegal for Canadians to export the alcohol, at least until 1930. They eventually got pressured to do so. Uh, So very different incentives. So the Canadians basically had no incentive to make American prohibition work. And if anything, of course, they had an incentive to undermine it by sending out alcohol legally from Canada, but sort of to be illegally consumed in America. And once the Canadians was forced out of doing that by lots of pressure from the Americans in 1930, then Canadian distillers, most famously Bronfman, uh, who founded Seagrams, they moved to Saint-Pierre and Michelob, the French islands off the coast of Canada and put their distilleries there so that they could essentially move sort of grain from Canada to be distilled in St. Michelob <laughs> and then shipped out to America from a French controlled port. So, so what's the lesson from this? Well, it's that you can't make other people in other countries that you don't control make your policy work for you. In fact, they will have lots of incentives to undermine your policy if it's economically beneficial for them to do so. And I think A lot of the post-Brexit period has been fulminating, uh, at least from those people who supported Brexit, about the EU making things difficult for Britain. But of course, the EU is not compelled in any way at all to make make Brexit work. After all, Britain has now left the European Union. And it's hard to to quash the self-interest of European exporters or European governments from exploiting Brexit, because there's no lever in which to stop them from doing so, except in tabloid fulmination, which has no effect at all or in occasional renegotiations. And you can see how we've got ourselves into this pickle if you look at the asymmetry that now exists in trade between Europe and the UK, which is that we still have not imposed the import controls that we're supposed to do as part of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, but Europeans have imposed their import controls. So in other words, it's easier for European exports to enter the British market with fewer checks and costs in doing so than it is for British exports to enter the European market. And so that's a terrible asymmetry for British producers. And I suppose the government could, of course, impose all of those extra costs at our border, but it doesn't seem to want to do so. And it can't make the Europeans change what they're doing. So right now, we're we're at the bottom of the slope. It's not an enviable place to be. But there's no real way of convincing our trading partners to do things that make Brexit work for us. I guess the the difference potentially here, which is why I think probably this is the lesson I found I could draw least optimism from, is that in the prohibition case, it was the actions of, for example, Canadians, which undermined the policy, but the Canadians were not decision makers or scapegoats in some way for the po- over the policy yeah. whilst in with brexit as you say there is this problem of 
or how much does the rest of does the rest of Europe, does the European Union want to make Brexit work? Well, it's not their policy. They're not particularly fussed. They're not really trying to. But the risk is the way politically that plays out is therefore people in Britain blame the EU and therefore actually makes any you know, future improvements in relations harder because you're you're blaming the very people you have to deal with. Whilst if you blame the Canadians, that doesn't doesn't affect that you know that the Canadians didn't have have a vote in the subsequent constitutional amendment. Debate. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. The, the, you know, there's a couple of issues that, that you draw on there and then alluded to in your final sentence. First is that there's no, there was no important backlash uh, against Canadians that doomed prohibition or, sorry, doomed repeal, right? That, that just didn't matter. But the m- most important anti-parallel here is that the Canadians didn't have a veto on repealing prohibition. And indeed, had they had a veto, given how much money that Seagram's was making from prohibition, (laughs) they might have vetoed repeal. So something we'll come to perhaps in a bit is that rejoining wouldn't necessarily look the same as being a member of the European Union because of the parts of the acquis that Britain would have to enter into that it didn't previously have to. Because joining the EU is a negotiation and it's one where there's very low levels of trust currently existing and possibly existing over the the very long run between the UK and the EU. It's easy to see how we end up in a de Gaulle situation of constantly being denied re-entry, even if the British public 70-30 wanted to rejoin. And that parallel with with Canada clearly doesn't doesn't hold up. Mm. And I guess the counterbalancing optimism I think pro-Europeans can take is from particularly your next lesson about people being fickle. And there's a lovely quote that you started that section with in your piece, which I'll just give listeners now, where you say that in 1930, the dry, so pro-prohibition, Democratic senator from Texas. What what a world, Democratic (laughs) senator from Texas (laughs) and against alcohol. Anyway, Morris Shepard infamously remarked that, quote, there's as much chance of repealing the 18th Amendment as there is for a hummingbird to fly to the planet Mars with a Washington monument tied to its tail. And that didn't age very well at all, did it? It did not age well, no. At least he didn't promise to eat a book, I suppose. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, florid piece of description that makes all of those funny lines about IBM saying there's only room for 12 computers in the world and the Beatles being rejected by major record labels that makes them look like good predictions compared to this because just three years later this this hummingbird had indeed flown to the planet Mars with a Washington monument tied to its tail. I think so it, it might just be getting old or it might be being a political scientist and, and constantly staring at data sets that go back 50, 60 years but change is endemic to po- political life. You cannot expect the constellation of preferences that existed in 2016 to last forever because firstly the people who voted at that time themselves cannot last forever and my colleague Simon Hicks at at the EUI has done some analysis of just how much sort of turnover in political preferences we might expect given demographic turnover right both people who voted for Brexit dying out but also actually a lot of younger people joining the electorate so there's that But then people just change their minds. And we know people change their minds because we don't always have the same government in charge. And I think this is the part that I always find confusing when people think about this as a referendum decision as a once and forever decision. 
which is that we regularly in this country veer between really quite different governments winning general elections. So the same British public that voted in Conservatives for 18 years between 1979 and 1997 gave Tony Blair a supermajority in 1997. Presumably, a lot of those people changed their minds. And the idea that we're sort of stuck with a fly trapped in amber moment that lasts politically forever from 2016 just seems to me to be a fundamental misunderstanding of the fluidity of political life. And I mean, I guess the the 1997 switch around in a way was slightly exaggerated by first past the post that that gives you big swings in MP numbers without necessarily many people changing their minds. But absolutely, you do see on lots of policy issue polling some quite significant changes over time. And indeed, as we referenced earlier, same-sex marriage is a really powerful example of that. And I think particularly because same-sex marriage is not, is essentially that debate was a debate about people's gut feelings. It wasn't, yeah. it, it didn't even have, however sort of tendentiously, one might view the 350 million on the side of a bus point with Brexit. With Brexit, Brexit did have, as it were, some facts one could argue over or some bits yeah, of, yeah claimed facts that you one could claim were, were true but, but, but weren't but there was a sense if you could debate facts and substance with same-sex marriage there was a little bit of that at the edges but fundamentally it was about a gut feel and people's gut feel has changed really quickly in lots of different countries by very significant margins on this issue and I, and, and I, so I, I think the that point about how fickle the public can be is is an important one I, I guess the complication with Brexit is that I, my assumption is, and from what I've sort of spoken with, with, say, people active in sister parties of ours in other countries and so on, that seems to hold up, is that the rest of Europe, the European Union, would want to see a long-term sort of sustained support for Britain being in the EU, because almost the last thing the EU would want is to readmit Britain and then have Britain, a whole set of debates about Britain leaving in a few years further. Down. It sort of, it has to be seen to be that this is a one-way, you know, a one-way ticket back. Yeah. And that I think yeah. would require much more sort of sustained support that in a way, as you say, I mean, it may be that, I mean, I guess we will never know, but I, one could make an argument that one of the reasons prohibition almost in a hurry, in a rush in the early 30s, went from seeming very unlikely to having been enacted was because of short-term moves in public opinion driven by an economic downturn and the like. And perhaps had Prohibition managed to hang on through the the mid-30s, it would have hung around for quite a lot longer. We'll never, we, we can, we can never know that. But, but it feels like with Brexit that it would, we can be more confident that it will require a sustained public opinion shift. And perhaps yeah, even yeah. at least a partial revival of pro-Europeans in the Conservative Party. So if you're sitting in Brussels, you can think, well, even if there's a changing government in Britain, they're not going to suddenly want to pull out again. Yeah, I think I think <laughs> I have to say there's a sort of there is a, a wonderful farcical quality to the idea that Britain rejoins the European Union and then just leaves five years later again. Yeah. <laughs> which which is is funny because it's possible. And so if I were the European Union, I would be very, very leery about letting Britain back in to the European Union on a kind of full acquis basis based on that. However, it's also not clear to me that 
that is part of the acquis, right? In other words, countries that are on the membership waiting list are, they have to pass a series of criteria, but I'm not aware of any of those criteria being your political parties all have to approve of this in certain ways. Now, I'm sure that sort of works out through the negotiating part, but ultimately it's not something you can really place in an acquis, right? You can't say, actually, Britain, this can only happen if YouGov records this many polls with this much support over a period of time. So it, it's much more in the kind of soft, unspoken part of politics, which which is which is very real and will be important, but ultimately won't be part of the kind of legal process and, and, the, and what Britain's rejoining... I guess I'm just a little bit more, I'm not sure if the word is cynical or actually just more optimistic about the sensible pragmatism of politicians in a way. I mean, the European Union is the institution that has famously papers over clock so that everyone can pretend you haven't passed the deadline, which is an admirable bit of pragmatism in terms of thinking, well, we just need a bit more time to do this negotiation. Legally, we're running out of time. We'll paper over the clocks. We'll carry on. And so I think Conversely, if there is a sense of, look, we just don't have any confidence that Britain would be in for the long term, people will find ways of essentially derailing or slowing down or kicking. No, I I think that's right. And I think one thing that pro-Europeans need to get their heads around is that that there is an important shift in the composition both of the European Parliament and of European governments that's been occurring over the last year or so that is essentially reducing the size of the central liberal kind of ALDE bloc and increasing the size of the Maloney block, that means that there may be fewer... It's it's a little hard for me to know, actually, whether Eurosceptic politicians would be more or less against Britain rejoining, right? Because in a way, of course, Maloney's politics are much more like the politics of of Eurosceptics. I mean, she is a a soft, at least, or pretending to be soft Eurosceptic. So the the kind of Guy Verhofstadt arguments about, of course, we'd let Britain back in, are not a commitment that Britain could rely on in five years' time either, right? The 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 political shape of both Parliament, of Commission, of European leaders might shift in kind of gaullist ways that that hurt a UK re-entry. Yeah. Well, so as well as people being fickle and the future being uncertain, there's also the point that you made in your fifth lesson, which is that what comes after is not what comes before, and that undoing a policy isn't simply about exactly replicating the previous setup before the policy was implemented. Yeah, that's right. And this was something that I don't think I'd been as aware of as perhaps I ought to as a professional political scientist about what the post-repeal period looked like. So once the 21st Amendment that repealed prohibition had had been passed, the US did not go back to the pre-prohibition world uh, because the 21st Amendment allowed states to create their own laws about um, the consumption, production, and interstate distribution of of alcohol uh, that could be far, far more restrictive than, say, the world of the 1890s, 1900s. And so if if your listeners have, have been to different American states and consumed alcohol in them or tried to purchase alcohol, they will have noticed how where you can buy alcohol varies dramatically across American states, right? There are some places where you could only buy from, from government stores. There, are, When I lived in Minnesota, for example, you couldn't buy alcohol in supermarkets. You had to buy it in the off license that was attached to the supermarket in a different in a different building there are obviously different hours so in some states you can buy liquor on sundays and others you can't and so on and 
and so forth. And, and those differences across states and even across counties in America, they, they owe their existence to not prohibition, but to the end of prohibition and the way in which that was done. So that this kind of free for all that existed before prohibition never re-emerged. Okay, so the parallel here, of course, is that the European Union that Britain might rejoin isn't going to be the European Union that it left first, right? Because various things have occurred while we were away, including some quite large Green New Deal post-COVID funding exercises that Britain might have sneered at or tried to reduce the size of. But also Britain would have to enter like other entry states would, and it would have to sign up to parts of the acquis that it didn't like, or or maybe it would, or maybe it wouldn't. We don't really know. It would almost certainly lose the rebate that we had. I, I can't imagine a world in which the rebate comes back. But then there are questions about whether Britain would have to join Schengen and therefore have open borders for transit with the rest of Europe. I mean, I'm assuming, I guess I would be very interesting to see what would happen with Ireland in that case, because of course Ireland's not in Schengen. Whether Britain would have to join the Euro, which is the big- You're not not telling us that rejoin is going to get completely bedeviled and derailed by a Northern Irish, Irish Sea policy dilemma in the way the Brexit has. I'm I'm just going to park that comment of yours and pretend (laughs) pretend I didn't hear it. I think it it would be very funny if, in order to rejoin Britain, had to have more sort of liberalised migration with Europe than Ireland did. (laughs) Then you'd have the Irish being worried about stopping goods coming in from anyway. So, or rather, stopping people. So, I I I don't think it's actually that realistic to think that Britain would rejoin Schengen. I think being an island uh, makes it easy not to rejoin Schengen. The euro is going to be the thing that if rejoin comes on the political agenda and and let's say i'm an opponent of rejoin the thing i talk about is the euro i say Mm -hmm. look we have to do this the europeans will insist on it we have to join the euro it'll be the end of the pound and i just think that would be much the most successful symbolic but also economic argument against rejoin that its opponents could make and now I think your point earlier about the pragmatism of the European Union would actually mean that that just like Sweden and Denmark, Britain would find a way of being in the European Union, claiming that it will join the euro someday, but not actually having to do so. But that's a tricky argument to make, because essentially the pro-rejoin people would have to say, look, they're not really going to insist on this, but it's not clear to me that the European Union, even if they knew that they weren't going to insist on it, could say that out loud, because what do they say to the other countries who want to join? So it's a very awkward dance that would have to be done. And I think that's the the biggest limit on rejoin mm. is that it's not just flipping a switch. And that's why rejoin is much harder in some ways now than it would have been before 2020. So if in 2019 we'd had a referendum then, I think that could have probably succeeded on a basis of essentially reversing Article 15 and rejoin. Yeah. I think I'm I'm tempted to make a slightly tongue-in-cheek comment that all of what you've said illustrates why someone like Boris Johnson would be the best leader of a rejoin. Because <laughs> I think yes, absolutely. all of those are details that you can find ways of sidestepping. Like on the Euro, you can imagine yeah, yeah. some new special rule about the rule about joining the Euro doesn't apply to pr- people who were previously members of the EU. And oh, look, yeah. there's only one country that falls into that exactly. category. That Previous members who were but not members need... of the Euro don't have to join it. Yeah. So look, Denmark and Sweden could leave and rejoin on the same basis. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> need to make the thing that makes the details fall by the wayside, or rather that makes it possible to, to sort out the details, is if there's a really strong desire to make the overall thing work. And in a sense, yeah. it's the 
it's it's the it's selling successfully the bigger vision, which is what Levers did successfully in 2016 and Remain has failed to do in 2016. That is the real crunch there. Because if you can sell the vision, you can, as annoyingly frustratingly Boris Johnson got away with in 2019, you can sort of fudge fudge the details, I think, at least politically. Um that leads us nicely on to the last point mm. then. <laughs> so I'll let you just before that. we do come on to that though, I just ah. I just thought there is a lovely extra parallel which I know will interest a lot of listeners, which is your point about how alcohol was harder to get hold of yeah. after prohibition was ended. There's a it's a lovely pointer towards maybe the arguments in favor of legalizing soft drugs that actually something's legal, you can control it, control it yeah. better. Um, well, but I, and and we do have lots of examples of that going on right now across different states in the United States of America and in Canada. For a long time, I was thinking the, the legalization of marijuana is this thing we're not talking about in the UK, but is being talked about in all of the countries that we constantly compare ourselves to that speak English. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's odd. But then I remember that Keir Starmer is a, is a cop. Right? So there's no way that he is going to be introducing the legalization of marijuana. So I think I've convinced myself against that for the time being. Although if you're ever thinking of writing a sequel to your piece, <laughs> it, it would be an interesting set of parallels to draw because yeah. you've got the argument about the economics of if you legalise something, you can tax it, you can get revenue, which has obviously been part of, uh, particularly in, in 2017, uh, very much that was part of the Lib Dem general election message then was legalise soft drugs, some legalisation of soft drugs to generate tax revenue to pay for lots of nice nice public services but yeah and you've even got the thin end of the wedge of the kind of medical use of mm. the drug right which so alcohol had to be used in certain ways alcohol is an important medicine, i think you'll find yeah okay well that'll be my next substack thanks mark <laughs> uh, anyway so on to the final lesson from this substack which was all your anti-lesson as yeah. you called it which is about needing a leader yeah so FDR, who's obviously the, the president who is in office when prohibition is repealed, although it is happening sort of as he comes into office. It's quite interesting to see the exact dates of all of this as FDR wins the election at the end of 1932. But back in the 1930s, it's a very, very slow, lengthy period before they enter office. I think he enters office in March or something. I have to get the, the date right, but it's not in January. Uh, like in present. So there's this buildup at the time where it's becoming very clear that Congress is going to start passing a repeal amendment now that FDR has won and does so. Then we have a, a series of state level conventions, which go quite rapidly, actually. And the amendment is passed by the by the end of 1933. OK, so FDR, until the middle of 1932, is prevaricating uh, and, and not being clear at all, really, about his views on prohibition. So there are in the early 1930s, a number of clear political signs that the public is turning in, you know, I draw parallels in the piece between wet Democrats winning in Kansas and, and in Ohio and in places that were totally dry and Republican and all, all these signs that the dries were going to be losing elections, wets were going to be winning, perhaps similar to what we've seen. I think this is actually most striking with the Liberal Democrats winning these huge by-election victories. But I think Labour and Selby kind of looks like this as well, um, although obviously not in Uxbridge. You have just these very, very clear tectonic shifts in the underlying politics. But the leader himself takes a while until the 1932 Democratic Convention and then at that point, he stands up and he says, this convention supports repeal, this candidate supports repeal. 
and he has suddenly flipped. And once he flips, he really flips so that Democratic candidates who are drys start losing funding. Right. So, mm-hmm. they, so they sort of they pull money away from from the pro-prohibition people towards pro-repeal candidates. And once FDR has flipped, he is you know, emphatically behind the benefits of repeal. When the repeal, there's this great aspect to repeal, which is that when Congress drafts the bill, they put in these income tax surcharges that are going to apply unless repeal happens, right? So there's sort of an implied threat that if you don't do this, income taxes are going up. So all kinds of politics changes, but very much at the last moment, albeit under a leader who we still think of today as one of the great political orators, Funnily enough, Roosevelt's wife, Eleanor, was just a massive dry. So there are some interesting within family splits here. But he, once he turns, he really turns. And so the question is, is Keir Starmer FDR? A question that I'm sure will be answered by many tedious Guardian op-eds over the next two years. But you can be FDR. And doubtless by a a brilliant book by a uh, a political science professor as well in a few years' time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, this is one of John Rental's questions to which the answer is no, moments ago. Starmer is lots of things, but I don't think at the moment he is an obvious great visionary. But the other thing that I don't think he is, I mean, it's funny, he has this kind of flip-flopper reputation that he's got, but I find it very hard to imagine a world in which Starmer suddenly flips on Brexit and then imposes that will heavily on the party. I mean, there are some signs he could do something like that because what he certainly has done is imposed his will very strongly on the party uh, and in a much more ruthless anti-Corbynite way than I think any of us thought he was going to do. But I don't see any signs from Labour, and particularly from the kind of Labour strategists like Deborah Mattinson, that they would be interested in a kind of pro-rejoin movement as a kind of vision, certainly for this election, but maybe even for the next election. There's lots of this talk about not now, but for the next election. But it's hard for me to see what the path is, because I think in order to do that, you have to have this very clear vision about how rejoining the European Union is a positive vision for Britain that allies with the rest of Starmer's agenda. But until we see what Starmer's agenda really looks like, it's hard for me to know what that what that strategy looks like. Mm. I think on the point about the positive vision, I'm reminded of what was a fairly seminal moment in Labour's transition from being a Eurosceptic to a pro-European party was when Jack Delors, who was then in holding a very senior, very powerful post in the European community, as it would have been then, when he came and spoke at a Labour conference and his Mm -hmm. speech went down phenomenally well. And it was all about positioning being pro-European as being a way of achieving Labour Party ideals. It was absolutely the big positive story. And obviously that sense of the EU being part of a positive vision for the country and what the sort of society you want fits very naturally with with the Lib Dems. And for understandable reasons, given the parliamentary arithmetic, I think most of what you've said, obviously, is focused in on Starmer. Um, I'm not about to talk up the chances of Ed Davey winning an overall majority in the House of Commons at the next election. You'll be glad to know. Well, we've we've Uh, been down that road in 2019 with what happens. I do think there is an interesting (laughs) question about if we end up with a Labour prime minister in a year or so's time, where does the effective opposition to them come from? Yeah. And what does that do to the European issue? Because is if the Conservative Party is really hammered and yeah. the Lib Dems have a good election result yeah. and yeah. we manage to follow that through with, say, some spectacular by-election wins under a Labour government, 
you can see how our continued pro-European position, that could actually end up being, whilst a lot of recent politics has been about people worrying about what happens to losing support in the Red Wall, that all being framed around Eurosceptics, you can see a future in which it's actually framed around how do you appeal to pro-Europeans? And that could shift yeah. the terms of political debate, I think, very significantly. That, I think, is the closest moderately plausible, I think, scenario I can imagine. And obviously one I'm very keen that we see happen, but I think it's the closest plausible one to an equivalent of that FDR tipping point in the US in the 30s. Yeah, yeah so no, I, so I, I do think um, quite genuinely that, that what happens with the Liberal Democrats in the next election will be crucial to the chances of rejoining. But not only that, what we haven't really mentioned here, but which I think is probably the most likely outcome, which is re-entering the single market. Mm. Right? And I deliberately haven't been talking about that just because I want to keep that parallel of rejoin mm. in mind. But it certainly seems feasible to me that Britain, as I used to say on Twitter back in 2016, 2017, Britain's destiny is to be a more annoying Switzerland. And I... <laughs> I, I think that is that is and boy is Switzerland annoying to the European Union, right? But I do think that, beautiful countryside, amazing yeah. chocolates. Well, great I mean, the horrible thing for the um, EU is selling me on this. And, Switzerland and Norway are these incredibly successful countries that aren't members of the European Union, but are members of the single market. So if I were writing one of these these interminable, how can we arrest Britain out of its economic decline pieces that even the Telegraph is publishing these days, I would note that the two most successful countries in Europe yeah. by income, depending on what one says about Luxembourg, are Switzerland and Norway. And so that that does offer an alternative for Britain if it wants to, if it can't, if it can't stomach rejoining. But let's think about the electoral logic of what might happen. So I think, I think what the Liberal Democrats have probably lacked since, say, the 2005 election, maybe 2010 election, is a really clear, distinct point of opposition to the Labour Party. And that's actually only really going to matter, I think, in periods when the Labour Party are doing well, right? So if you think mm. about the Charlie Kennedy era, where the Lib Dems had their really even more seats than they got in 2010, right? It was about being against the Iraq war and against the kind of authoritarian side of Labour that I don't think is going anywhere under Keir Starmer. And in a way, being slightly socially authoritarian is always quite successful for Labour. I mean, Tony Blair was quite socially conservative, at least kind of preternaturally, in kind of in the way that Barack Obama was quite a small C conservative. And so there's a sort of position for the Liberals to be the Liberal Party that kind of pushes against that, and then pushes against this kind of overstepping with Iraq. And the question is, is a, is a clearly pro-Europe position, one where if the Labour Party becomes associated with kind of umming and erring and keeping a Tory Brexit alive kind of arguments, is, is there good electoral space for the Liberal Democrats there? And I think there is plausibly space for the Liberal Democrats to not just get 30 seats, which I think is very likely in the next election, but push back up to kind of Charlie Kennedy levels as a quasi-opposition to the Labour Party if the Tories are tearing themselves into shreds as they were in the early 2000s. And... Uh, now, if that world happens, it's one probably that part of the problem for the Liberal Democrats is in a world in which the Tory party don't matter, Labour have a huge majority. And then it's not really clear that the Liberals can matter, even with 50 or 60 seats. So there's a slightly damned if you do, damned if you don't element to this, that getting to a Labour-Liberal coalition is always quite challenging, I think. And we, we don't have... Uh, examples of it in, in recent memory. 
So it doesn't seem to me likely that the Liberal Democrats are going to have vetoes on what a Labour government does, unless Labour just end up doing much worse than I expect them to do in this election. But that kind of, but UKIP didn't, didn't have seats practically in Parliament, right? Only ever had two seats, but it still acted as a force that compelled the Tory party to do things it might otherwise not have wanted to do. And I could see the Liberal Democrats playing that role quite effectively in a period in which the Conservatives are engaged in sort of blood renting and, and mutual destruction. And there's no other clear opposition because the SNP fall apart. And, and that, I think, is your most likely case for the Lib Dems effectively pushing Starmer to do something he currently doesn't seem to want to do. I've obviously got lots of views on what might happen in the hung parliament and so on. But given given I don't want to give our press office too many headaches, <laughs> and my role in the party, I will resist the temptation to get drawn into that discussion. But That's just to idea. say, I think, to my mind, that is the most plausible route back to Britain having very significantly improved relations with Europe. Question of exactly how far the road down the road Britain ends up going, but at least at the minimum, very significantly improved relations is a Labour government that's probably in office for a couple of terms at least. Yeah. And a and a, a effective Liberal Democrat presence that as as it were does in reverse what the Brexiteers did to the Conservative yeah. Party. Yeah. You know, I Labour think we, we would probably... the SNP and, and the Liberals. The problem is the SNP are not, not, not reliable partners on any of this. Yeah. But you can imagine a world in which they're getting tugged from the left, right, as the Tories got tugged from the right, if, if you view this as left, but I suppose tugged from yeah. the Remain direction. Yeah. We've spoken for a long time, so we should wrap this up in a moment. But before we do, Ben, you do have a new book out and it would be remiss of me not to give you a chance to plug your book. So it's called Why Politics Fails. So do you want to give readers a quick plug about what it's about and why they should read it? Yeah, thank you, Mark. So this book, it came out a few months ago. It will be out in paperback in the near future, but who knows how near. What the book tries to do is to give you a sense of how people like me, political economists, think about really big, challenging political questions and why it's hard to get things that we mutually broadly agree on, even in our polarised um, UK. Things uh, in, in the book, I list these out as democracy, equality, solidarity, security and prosperity. So nice big goals that we could broadly get collective agreement on, but we seem not to be able to get to. Uh, and what I try and do in the book is identify a series of traps where essentially what's going on is our individual self-interest either to sort of misrepresent what we want or to misbehave in some ways prevents us from getting to those goals. So to give a very quick example on this, I opened by talking about Brexit. And in 2019, with a colleague, I went down and I, I met with two members of parliament who, with John Burko, had taken control of the order paper during the great indicative votes period to try and figure out if there was a way to get MPs to vote to understand what, if anything, Parliament wanted. And of course, as all your listeners will know, it turned out that we also failed to discover what Parliament wanted. And in part, that's because every MP, just like each of us, had an incentive to misrepresent what they wanted, including, of course, lots of Liberal Democrat MPs and SNP MPs and Labour MPs, and undermined our collective ability to come up with any kind of decision at all. So if you read the book, you can find all of these examples of how our best laid plans get undermined by, by well, by us. 
but then also th there's a lot of thought uh, at the end of each section. You'll be delighted to know my publishers made me think about solutions. Where we think about some ways that we could improve the design of our political institutions or the types of policies we use uh, to, to sort of override and overcome uh, these traps. And so if you're interested in things like citizens' assemblies or proportional representation, as I'm sure lots of your listeners will be, I talk about the, what the promise of those types of institutions might be. I'm currently about two thirds of the way through it and definitely intending to finish reading it, which is a, a, <laughs> a, good, a good sign of approval, I hope, of the book. It, in fact, it, is, it is a bit of a magnum opus, but you'll make it, I promise. <laughs> I, well, also, I, th I like the way that it's you divide the different air themes up into different chapters also means <gasps> if somebody wants to not quite read it cover to cover, you can dip in and out and pick out the, the themes that interest you most. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I realized after a while that maybe I should just set it up for people who read in the bath <laughs> for 15 <laughs> minutes at a time. And that way you're not sat there having to make your way through 20,000 words at a pop. Unlike if you read my Brexit <laughs> and Prohibition piece, which is a, which is a good lengthy one. So I will include links to both your book and the Brexit piece that we've been talking about in the show notes. Listeners can also find Ben on Twitter at Ben W. Ansel and on threads at Ansel underscore B. And you can find myself on Twitter at Mark Pack and on threads at Mark Pack UK. And do go and tweet or thread away at whatever you thought of what we've gone through in today's episode. And as I said, look out in the show notes for follow up links. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you, everyone, for listening. 